hey, I, I'd like to, to to start with this. Did the Heisman Committee get it right uh, with giving it to Daniels? I think that there were two good choices, to be honest. Um, you know, I think that Daniels was incredible, and 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 I think Michael Penix was also deserving. So, uh, to me, it was uh, a, a really great debate. I, you know, in my own head, to be honest with you, the process took me longer this year than than it has in previous years. And previous years, I just really, you know, felt strongly about one candidate, but. I actually spent a good bit of, of last week, um, last weekend, Sunday, um, just or the right after the conference championship games, and and I spent about an hour that next Sunday, and I watched some film of, of each of the players. I had watched them all year, but I went back over the numbers. I ended up landing on Michael Penix, but I again, I just don't think that there was a wrong choice. The production of what Daniels did was incredible, and that and in a lot of ways, it was unprecedented. Um, I thought that Penix earned it because of the way that he played in the more important games and the fact that he led his team to victory in those games. Um, so, you know, I, I did a long um, riff, I guess, on this and just kind of explained why I voted the way that I did. But, uh, you know, for me, I felt like there were two really good choices. My vote went to Penix. I put Daniel second and Bonex third on my ballot. Uh, but man, congratulations to Daniels. He, in a lot of ways, has played himself into a position where he's going to be in the conversation with the Penixes of the world, and, and maybe even the Drake Mays and Caleb Williams as, as one of those quarterbacks that that uh, an NFL franchise is going to be looking at in the first round potentially. So it sounds like you put a, a lot of weight onto like what happened with the team and wins yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, which I think is important, but how do you like? How do you evaluate that? You know, when you're talking about Heisman's or MVPs, how do you evaluate that and just and, and essentially, you know, put that in as part of the program as opposed to just what that guy did, you know, individually? Well, I think that that you've got to, in order to be the most outstanding player in college football, you better be outstanding when it means the most and and when it matters the most and. Michael Penix beat Oregon twice, you know, they beat Oregon state. They won their last nine games by 10 points or less. He had to be great. Um, his defense also wasn't, wasn't stellar just like LSU. Uh, and, and they had to lean on the passing game and, and Daniels lost, you could argue, you know, three of his four most important games. And in a lot of ways, his numbers became, and this is really where I landed, uh, Mark, was that his numbers became a bit inflated down the stretch because he's playing well into the second half against, you know, poor opponents just for numbers. And their game plans were, in a large sense, derived just to produce for Jaden Daniels. Now, he did it, which is incredible. But, you know, two of his games were, were against Georgia State and Grambling. And he had, I think, 11-plus touchdowns in those games, you know, and, and, and the Grambling game, or excuse me, maybe it was Georgia State, um, you know, he's still in in the fourth quarter with eight touchdowns. It's like, come on. You know, so I, I felt like there was a bit of stat padding going on with LSU. They didn't play meaningful games in the last month after they lost to Alabama. And so, again, that's, that's what ultimately, in good options, that's what ultimately landed me on Michael Pinnock. One more college question, college football question. I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on Reese Davis, ESPN College uh, Game Day, was uh, was talking on his podcast about whether or not ESPN should be criticized for having undue influence on the college football playoff. Here's what he said. Yes, there is power. 
if you mean by power that we make phone calls, dictate to somebody, or have such influence over grown, successful human beings that they are going to uh, align themselves with whatever opinion was offered on game day or on any other ESPN platform, then no, I don't think we have that power. Do we have the power to make people evaluate their stance? I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. ESPN does pay $476 million a season to broadcast the college football playoff. How much influence do they have? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I know Reese, and I know a lot of, I know Bill Hancock really well. I know a lot of those people on, on the committee. Do, you know, and I would echo what he says. Do, do I think ESPN is calling them and, and saying like, hey, we really need X, Y, or Z? No, I, I don't believe that that takes place. Um, I think that some of the voices at ESPN are influential voices. Um, as is, listen, Mark, you and I both know that when you do what we do, you know, you, you hope that you are good enough at it where your opinion can carry weight. Um, and are there opinions on their platform that carry weight and could sway individuals? Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember now, the committee is made up of, of 13 people that don't do college football for a living. Okay, so as much as he wants to say, like, oh, highly successful adults, are you really going to change their mind? Yeah, of course. Because what highly successful adults generally understand is where their expertise lies and where someone else's expertise lies. And so if you take 13 people that are not full-time in college football and they start listening to people that they respect and that they know cover the sport and are in college football for their profession then those people's opinion could and will and should sway their own opinion of the sport. So I think I'm echoing what he said. The, the, the darker side of things is when you start talking about future contracts and the, the first round is not sold for next year and, you know, you, you sell future contracts based on past um, um, ratings and do you really want to include a team that could give you a game that's not going to give you a good rating? Do I think that that went into it? No, uh, I think it's a, a cozy conspiracy theory, to be honest with you, but I don't think that that influences that committee. Okay, let me ask you this, because, um, you know, Flor uh, you, you look at Florida State, and heartbroken for those kids, and, I, you know, I look at them as, like, that's a football team, right? That's a good football team, lost their quarterback, that's an issue. If it's CU in that situation, and CU loses their quarterback, but they have prime time, to see you make that final four as opposed to getting bounced by Alabama? I think that's a great question or, or, or trade Florida state and Alabama, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's Nick Saban who loses this quarterback or it's the SEC representative that loses this quarterback. And, and here is, is where I would break with those at ESPN because I absolutely believe that the committee would put in the more, you know, quote unquote, more key entity. Um, I think that if, if Florida State was a one-loss ACC champ and Alabama was the uh, undefeated SEC champ that lost their quarterback, there's no question Alabama's in the playoff. I don't know about Colorado, you know, but I would, I, that would be a great thought experiment or even, you know, case study if that were to happen. But if you just traded Florida State's and, and Alabama's situation, mm -hmm. I think absolutely Alabama would go. Nick, you, you, like part of this was 
that the quarterback was Jordan Travis was the convenient excuse, okay? Because they weren't going to leave the SEC out. The SEC is the most powerful entity in the sport. If you want to talk about who has influence over the committee and who has influence over the sport, we should talk more about the SEC conference. Greg Sankey as a commissioner versus ESPN, you know, the the broadcasting partner. I think that that when you look at, at what went down, there was no earthly way that the SEC was going to get left out. Just period. Visit with Joel Clapp, presented by Audi Flatirons. Joel, do you now view the Denver Broncos as a playoff team? Is your expectation yes. that they go to the playoffs? Yes, um, because they're playing better than the other teams. Now, I know that you know they didn't beat the Texans, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a bummer, but if you look at their stretch of football so much, and in particular more so, I think, recently in the NFL, I mean, Gosh, man, they built this league for parity, and they get it, don't they? My goodness, like every team feels similar. And so it comes down to, like, how you're playing at the time, and are you building? What's your trajectory as a team? Well, this team's trajectory is so different than others around the league. As others, you know, bump around during the course of the season, Denver starts out terribly, looks like they're going to be in the Caleb Williams sweepstakes, and now you can make an argument over the last six weeks and seven weeks that they're one of the best teams in the National Football League. So their trajectory and their upward momentum and their quality play over that stretch leads me to have an expectation that they will be in the playoff. I, 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 this is a team that plays quality enough defense and, and their offense does enough sound things that when they're not turning the ball over, they, they become hard to beat. And, and that was, I thought, one of their best performances of the season last week in what turns out to be, you know, a home game out here in LA, which I think is, is fantastic. But I absolutely have the expectation. If you're asking me, uh, do I think Denver's going to go to the playoffs? I, I would say absolutely yes. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. And as disappointed as I was in that Houston game, because uh, even a competent quarterback would have scored 40 in that game with all the breakdowns and all the wide-open guys and all the people that were missed, I think Russ bounced back and, and, you know, in the style with which they play, which is, what, dump it off the back end flats, you know, the screen game, you know, have some play pass where you have seven-man protection, a two-man route, and, you know, and you you pick – Portland Sutton, and you throw it to him and hope he makes a catch. I mean, that's kind of their offense in general. Yeah. Um, yep. But I did think he he acquitted himself after that Houston game because I thought that was as poor a performance as he's had all season long. You know, what's interesting, Mark, is that they play <laughs> – it's going to sound bad for a guy that's, you know, been to multiple Pro Bowls and won a Super Bowl, but they play around their quarterback. Mm. You know, they, they manage around their quarterback. If you, it, to, to all the points that you were just making – you know, everything has to be in sequence, you know, for Russ. And, and the, the rhythm of the offense has to be uh, r- really spot on. And and this is where, and he doesn't get a lot of credit. And maybe he does. I don't know. Guys, you know, I don't l- live there, you know, anymore. But I don't feel like Sean Payton is getting the credit nationally that he deserves. Even Vance Joseph, for that matter. They totally transform. You know, in, in my sport, in college football, we have just thrown rose petals on Nick Saban and not just because he's going to the Rose Bowl, but because we we've talked about this like development from a team that's not his normal team. And look at what he's done with them. Look at what Sean Payton has done with this Denver Broncos team. Stink, has there been a better coaching job in the national football league than Sean Payton with Denver this year? 
No, I would say, I'd say right now, to your point, Sean Payton would be in line for the coach of the year. He'd get my vote right now if this season were to end today. And Vance Joseph would be the assistant coach of the year. Based upon the turnaround they've had from one and five to what they're doing now, uh, it's remarkable. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is understanding your weaknesses, mitigating your weaknesses, and just leaning into your strengths and knowing how you have to play to win football games. And they that's exactly what they're doing on both sides of the ball. Yeah, and, and I, to be honest, it's it's beautiful in a lot of ways. You know, this is what I love about the sport. It's not always just the, the guys that are making spectacular plays, right? It's not always just the Jamar Chases of the world and, and so on. Yes, that, that has its place, and we all love watching it. There's no doubt. But to me, it's it's the... It's the nuances of the game, and it's it's the ability of coaching staffs and team teams to buy into philosophies and understand how they win. You know, it's and I've gone through this before with you guys. You know, you gotta as a coach, you've got to teach your players what they're doing, and then the good coaches will teach them how to do it and, and become fundamentally sound. And then the great coaches teach them why they're doing it. And it feels like this Denver team understands why they win. Not just what they're doing and how to go win a football game, but why they win. And and to your point about weaknesses, and I've said this line before, I, I believe on on this show. But I go back to you know I'm I like these guys that are kind of like life hack guys, and Tim Ferriss is one of those guys. And and he he has this great line in one of his books, and it, and it says something along the lines of you don't succeed because you have no weaknesses, rather you succeed because you identify your strength and you build habits around them. And that's Denver this year. I mean, that's that that line is is a definition of the Denver Broncos. Joel, last one, pretty quick. We used to do this segment, you and I, QB on QB, where you would uh, really break down a, a quarterback. Last week, two weeks ago against Houston, Jerry Judy, uh, they missed out on some throws to Judy. Judy did not hide his displeasure. It certainly looked like in the Chargers game that they came out trying to get the ball to Judy, and Judy had a rough game. As a quarterback... Do you do you feel the the pressure, the responsibility to get a receiver going? And in the same breath, will you say, "Hey, you had your chance, you blew it, we move on"? I just never, you know. Now, granted, uh, in the game that I that I played, you know, it was a more system oriented game. Um, Jerry Judy is not Jamar Chase, you know, to bring him up again. Jerry Judy is is not what I would call an elite wide. He's not Tyreek Hill, you know. He's he's not one of these guys that you have to get the ball to him. So if if I had one of those players, yes, obviously I would feel the pressure to make sure that that player was comfortable and in rhythm, and that we were exploiting the matchups that he provides and the mismatches that he provides. Jerry Judy, I don't believe is that player. And so I would feel no obligation whatsoever to, to get a wide receiver going that wasn't an elite wide receiver that was going to make us tangibly better just because he's on the field or lined up in a certain spot. And, and this is where I always go back to, you know, I, I've always said <laughs> no team has won a Super Bowl because their best player on offense is a wide receiver. It is a dependent position. And, and this is why they generally throw so many fits is because they know that. They know their spot on the totem pole. Deep down inside, they know they're unimportant as a position group. And so they wear their, you know, whatever, and they throw their fits. And, 
they do all this stuff to be outlandish and, and, and big and brash because they are a dependent position. They understand, in a lot of ways, their unimportance. Um, and I know that that sounds you know, over the top, but it's true in a lot of ways. My obligation as a quarterback is to operate the offense to its most efficient clip. Okay, that means putting the ball on time and on target to the place where it's supposed to go based on what the defense is doing and what the defense is dictating to me of where the football should go. At no point do I think Russell Wilson should be out there trying to force the ball to Jerry Judy as a guy that has not proven himself to be an elite wide receiver, much less play a position that's an independent position. Hmm. Didn't sound harsh to me at all. It sounded beautiful. Thanks, Joel. We appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> hey, Merry Christmas. Oh, wait, we got next Merry week. Christmas. We got, we got, him, we got okay. him next week. We, we got, got him next week. week. All right, hold on to Merry that. Merry before Christmas. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, there you is. know what? Two, two Merry Christmases are better than one, Mark. Yeah, oh, I love it. Adjunct Professor Joel Clatt. Yeah. There he goes. Presented by uh, Audi Flatiron.